When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? Oh, we've just got a boss on today. We have Eleanor Yanagar, who is a medieval historian. She lectures on medieval and early modern history at a number of universities across London. She has a fantastic blog called Going Medieval, which she says is what I do for fun because I'm a sad, sad medievalist and I want other people to be as weird as me about it. <laughs> she has a book, The Middle Ages, a graphic history, which busts the myth of the Dark Ages, shedding light on the medieval's period's present-day relevance in a unique illustrated style that's due out this summer available to pre-order and when amazon reroutes you to buy jenga the game tell it to stick it and say no i actually was looking for the book uh, she writes <laughs> for history today bbc history magazine among others and in her own words she is also all over tv and the radio whenever someone needs to talk about medieval dicks eleanor welcome hey thanks so much for having me Oh, I'm just excited to talk to you. How is Corona? How is lockdown? Are you in London? Uh, I am in London. And so, you know, it's kind of like a very slow moving, bright and sunny zombie apocalypse movie. So um, things uh, could be worse, you know? Yeah. Just uh, pray. I just I want a bar to open again soon. That's all I ask for in life. Oh. Or even just McDonald's. A McChicken sandwich right now. I would absolutely just kill for a pint. My kingdom for a pint. It's just, it's ridiculous. You know, stop telling me I can drink beer in my own home. It's not the same. It's not I know. First world problems, people. First world problems. This know, is right? true. This is, I'm the real victim of this worldwide outbreak. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what we did, we did a and a and we put it out to Twitter, because um, you have an amazing following on it, um, to get questions specifically to talk to you about medieval women. And I love that people have, for the most part, gone for social questions as opposed to questions about famous women that we've all heard of. So this could be a bit of a marathon, but we're game if you are. Oh, I am absolutely down for this. Let's do it. Alina, get us started. Great. So we split all of these into a few manageable sections. So we're going to start with women and war, which is probably my favourite topic. So women and war. Elizabeth Fell asks, are there any surviving examples of women's armour and who wore them and why? So this is a great question. And one of the reasons why my answer is going to be a bit frustrating is that it is likely uh, that women wore armor. We are pretty damn sure that they wore armor. We see it, uh, for example, in pictures of women, or we know that there are women, for example, um, Joanna Flanders, who was um, a countess who rode into battle. And we know from um, her biographies and uh, various chronicles about her that she wore armor. That's something that they definitively uh underscore. Um, so we know there's women wearing armor. We see pictures of it. But none of it really survives. 
And I mean, there are kind of a number of reasons why that might happen. Um, armor in and of itself is something that a lot of the time gets reused. You've got to be like extraordinarily wealthy in order to like keep a huge thing, like a piece of armor around the joint, right? Like that's one of the first yeah. things that's going to kind of like get tossed out if you're, if you don't have room to keep it. So yeah, royal families and that sort of a thing, they can, keep hold of their massive armor collections. But, you know, if you can't fit this anymore or no one's going to wear it, that sort of a thing, a lot of the time it'll get repurposed and reused. So because women warriors certainly were extant, but they're not like common, that's one of the things where you'd be like, well, we don't really need armor for a woman, so let's beat this out and we'll turn it into armor for somebody else, that kind of a thing. So unfortunately, we don't have any surviving armor, but we absolutely do know that it existed and that women wore it. But it's one of those things because we've got um, just records of it that are either artistic or they are written. So um, it's a bit of a sad one. I wish that we absolutely had it, but we don't. Uh, but we did. We are um, under no illusions that it didn't exist. I love this image of some blacksmith somewhere hammering the boobs out of a set of armor to, to fit a guy further down the family. <laughs> exactly. Like, please, we, this armor needs to be at least 10% less sexy. We've got to get in there. So or you're going to need just quite read... big armor. My boobs aren't that big. Your boobs are bigger than mine. Um, I was going to say, you could always <laughs> reroute all the boob stuff to Henry VIII as he gets bigger and bigger. Cause there's a fair lot of moobage going on there as well. Um, this next question. Absolutely. Thanks for that image. <laughs> I love this next question. Basically, I love this girl's username. Claire Mead, sword lesbian of North London, says, who would you nominate? Look, as- we, we absolutely <laughs> stand a sword lesbian. That's brilliant. I love it. Who would you nominate as a lesser known medieval warrior woman, either a fighter or a commander slash strategist people should know more about? Okay, so I've got a few answers for this because this is an exciting uh, question, which I'm so glad uh, that we saw. But my one of my favorite medieval warrior women is Kuala Bint al Azwar. Um, and she was uh, a commander during the um, Islamic conquests of the 7th century. Um, so she was a strategist. But we also know that she rode into battle regularly. Um, she led a troop comprised all of women against the Byzantine army at the Battle of Yarmouk in 636. Uh, which is absolutely um, unapologetically badass. She is um, awesome. She was super, really great. Um, so she's involved in battles in what's now Syria, in Jordan, in Palestine. She was involved in a uh, battle in Damascus. Um, and she was uh, really high up in, um, it just basically uh, is, well, what was Islamic society, just becoming Islamic society at the time. And she started out as a commander and was just like, you know, I can kick ass too. Um, one of my favorite stories about her is that uh, the Byzantine armies actually captured her at one point. Um, and there's a story that like, you know, as terrible men will do when they capture women in war, there was some kind of plan by the guards to try and rape her. But instead, she rallied all the other women who had been captured by the Byzantine teams they fought off and killed 30 men with you only using tent poles in the camp and they all escaped like wow, oh, wow. like you're not gonna find someone better than koala like she is incredible um but i also like uh there is a woman that we know as um jean hachette uh, her name was originally jean lasna i think my french is not great uh so forgive me uh, but she lived in the town of beauvais and in 1472, Charles the Bold led an attack on it. And she was just a regular woman. She was just a woman in the town. But she grabbed, as the, her new name uh, suggests, a battle axe and just went up to the walls and started wailing on people. 
And she fought off the Burgundian standard bearer who was like kind of climbing over the walls. And everyone was all like, oh man, this woman is so badass. We can actually do this. And it really turned the tide of battle. Um, and I really like stories like that where we see kind of ordinary women step into the breach because like Koala is amazing, right? Um, or, uh, you know, I was just talking about when we were talking about honor, um, armor, Joanna Flanders. And, but it's more likely that you'll see these warrior women if they come from noble families or well-connected families. So I like the women who are just kind of like, nah, screw that. I'm going in. And so that's what's great about Sean Hachette. Um, we also know that there were a lot of women involved, for example, in the defense of Prague um, by the, the Hussites uh, were defending Prague when it was attacked by imperial forces in uh, 1420. Uh, and uh, there's at least two women and a bunch of girls on top of the walls just like throwing spears and stones at attackers. And so like really getting involved um, in protecting their community. And like these are really realistic, um, ordinary people that we can see who are just like, well, you know, um, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to do my thing. You can't stop me. And so that's the stuff that's inspiring. I love, I love that. All I really do. It sounds like mm-hmm. Croydon on a Sunday night or Saturday night, sorry. But um yeah, it it's awesome. I love them. Yeah. All. Oh wow. Well. Uh yeah. <laughs> the image of Croydon, I can't get that out of my yeah. mind now. <laughs> sorry, everyone in Croydon. Yeah, no, oh, it's not talk- the first <laughs> time I've slated at them. <laughs> so we've been talking about women in war. Let's move on to women in power. Mm-hmm. Um we the soldier asks who are your top three most interesting underrated medieval ladies i'm sure you've come across a few who really stood out or deserve to be more widely known yeah so um i mean there's so many great women and i so i was really like oh a top three is difficult so i'm going to start with the only royal person that i'm going to talk about right now mm-hmm. and this uh woman that i really love uh her name is um elspeth Shemislin. Uh, you know, uh, common, common pronunciation. So she yeah. is, uh, she is, uh, the queen of Bohemia and the, uh, wife of John of Luxembourg, uh, who everybody knows who John of Luxembourg is. He's John the Blind of Bohemia who goes into the Battle of Cressy blindfolded and gets himself killed because he's an idiot. Uh, but, uh, she's also the mother of Charles IV, who, um, real heads will know from being all over. It basically, if you've been to Prague and you see the world Charles on something, that's Charles IV. Yeah. So she was his mom. And the reason why I'm really into him is like, so her, her husband, uh, John of Luxembourg came to control Bohemia because all of the men in the Pshemislid line, which had been ruling uh, the Bohemians for centuries died out. So she was sort of like uh, the last and best dressed. So he gets to become king. She hated her husband and just absolutely hated him uh, because by all accounts, he was just an insufferable douche. Uh, he had no interest in running the country. He just liked going to tournaments, and he was just like, how much money can I withdraw from this bank account? Uh, oh, by <laughs> I'm going to go, like, uh, be in a tournament, and then I'm going to go blind myself, follow myself, and march into a battle and die. You know, so, and understandably, she hated him. So she was, like, fermenting a rebellion behind his back while he was, like, never in Bohemia. And, like, she went and talked to all of the nobility and almost led a coup against her own husband to, like, just get him out of the way completely and then just pass everything on to Charles as a baby. That Um, is so much more interesting than just sleeping with his best friend. I love her. Yeah, and she was just like, I don't have any time for this sad man. I can just, like, this dude doesn't even, like, speak Czech. I'm going to go, like, rally all the nobility to my cause. And she almost got away with it. It was really incredible. Uh, but unfortunately, he found out at the last minute, boo. Boo. Um, and 
and then like basically took Charles away and he got educated at the French court and the rest is history. But I love the scheming. I just yeah. love the scheming. And um, I always get really excited for like um, when you do see women pull things like this, because this is like one of the things we love about Eleanor of Octane, for example, is like yeah. all the scheming. But like, I love a schemer. Um, so in terms of more normal people, I don't know if you guys caught this, but uh, there was a bit of a thing a few months back, maybe a year back, about a nun named Joan of Leeds. No. Um, and she is one of my favorite medieval women now because uh, what she did to bring herself into the historical record uh, is she ran away from a nunnery because she wanted to have sex. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> So she, she was like, that is it. Like, it's not doing it for me. And I don't know, she hooked up with some guy, snuck out of the nunnery, like ditched her habit somewhere and just like proceeded to go to pound town. Uh, and, uh, eventually like the nunnery like tracked her down and the bishop was writing all these letters saying that she'd been quote unquote seduced by the ways of carnal lust. And she had to kind of be brought back into the nunnery kicking and screaming. And they were like, you signed a vow. You have to still be a nun. And she was like, Oh, I just want the D. And I just think that that's deeply relatable and um i love <laughs> i love I it love those little stories though because like uh nunneries are actually like really cool places for a lot of women but one of the things that you know is hard is like this whole clerical clerical celibacy thing it's like, supposed to be hard that's sort of the deal but like you, you know we think of nuns and we're kind of like oh you know very pious women this that the other and it's like eh, you know sometimes sometimes they just wanting to get laid and, I mean, I love to see it. So, uh, Joan of Leeds is uh, one of my favorites. And I just like people who pop up on the historical record, too, for just being a bit wild. Yeah. Like, she, she doesn't have to be great, but, I mean, she's extremely of a list of medieval women that I try to have a beer with. She's high on the list. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and, and also, I'm really into, I guess my last one is uh, Dorotea Bucca. Um, and Dorotea Bucca, as the name indicates, is uh, Italian. And she was the chair of philosophy and medicine at the University of Bologna for over 40 years. Oh, wow. uh, Up until 1390. So this kind of is almost unprecedented because uh, universities, a lot of the time, in order to be involved in them, like if you want to be a student at a university in the medieval period, uh, you're actually a member of the clergy. You have to take an oath. Um, and it's for complicated reasons, basically because you know how uni students are dickheads. Yeah. Um, yeah, uni students were dickheads in the medieval period too. And by taking um, a vow and becoming a member of the clergy, it meant that you wouldn't get in trouble if you, um, like ran out on your bar tab in a tavern. You wouldn't get in trouble with regular law enforcement. You'd get in trouble with the church and they'd go, you're very naughty. Don't do that again. And it was no. way of kind of like, so, so breaking like the minutes are in the weather is kind of put out of their reach because they sign this deal with the church. Yeah, so it's like when when you break the the weather spoons chair, then the church will just go stop that instead of them being like getting in actual major legal trouble. But um, the thing is, obviously, if you're going to become a clergy member, uh, that means that it's not open to women to go to university, so it can be really difficult for women to get a really formal education. Rich women are educated very well at home all the time, but to see a woman a woman actually having a chair at a university is just like absolutely crazy. So you gotta understand that this woman was an absolute phenom, like just incredibly brilliant. Um you know, in the fourteenth century to hold a university chair for forty years, there's just absolutely nothing like it. So I just wanna shout out to a woman who somehow 
managed to get her foot in the door uh, in the middle of a really patriarchal society. So that's extremely cool, and we love to see it, you know. But also, don't get too carried away with that because her being there, it's sort of like the exception that proves the rule, right? Like there's yeah. Dora's hair and daylight, you know. So. Yeah. Yeah. She sounds epic as well. Uh, we had a couple of questions come in about um, in attic succession. So Linda asked, were there any examples of matrimonial mm-hmm. or in attic succession in the courts of Europe, um, however obscure in the earlier medieval periods? But then Eudemonicus also asked, and I know you want to touch this one, it says, what led to the Basque being almost uniquely practicing in attic succession? Yeah, so um, these are we can roll these into the same question. So yeah. the sad news is, uh, no, we don't really have any um, examples of purely matrilineal succession. And but the Basques do sort of come into this, but not quite in the way that this person thinks. Um, so the Basques aren't actually practicing in attic succession. And I think the way that this came up, I was like, where have we got this idea? Apparently, it uh, comes up in Crusader Kings. Um, And now this is um, a a warning for those who shall be warned about taking video games as serious history. In Crusader (laughs) Kings, you can also make a horse the Pope, but that doesn't make it real. (laughs) Um, I think that the reason Crusader Kings has uh, touched on this, though, is because the Basques do have a thing where women do inherit. But the thing is, it isn't an attic. So an attic would mean that it would go from through women the entire way down. Yeah. But what uh, people in the Basque region often do is they will have, uh, for example, uh, people in the Basque region in what is now France would have real primogeniture. So um, primogeniture is a system whereby the firstborn inherits everything. Yeah. And we tend to go, oh, primogeniture, that means, oh, the firstborn man inherits everything. But no, no, no. Uh, for them, it was like, well, whoever's firstborn. So if it's a woman, she can inherit. If it's a man, he can inherit. Um and then the Basques in the Spanish-speaking regions had a form of inheritance where whoever was considered the best qualified to inherit would. So it usually went to men just because, you know, stuff is sexist. But yeah. it meant that if a woman was, like, really well qualified, and then um, then she could be handed everything. And that was, like, completely within the uh, realms of possibility. Um, so, and it's like the thing about secession is that it is like more specifically about the title. I think we are going to talk about, um, inheritance generally later. Yeah. This is kind of like, um, if we're talking about actual titles, it's like the Basques are someone who will pass it down. But also the thing is sort of the entire point of the hundred years war and why it kicked off is that things could inherit through matrilineal lines for a really long time. And that was considered sort of par for the course. If all the men die, right? Like if all your brothers die, then yeah, usually things will kind of like um, go through you. Um, That's how, for example, John of Luxembourg becomes King of Bohemia, as I was talking about earlier through his wife, right? Because all her brothers are dead. Um, but that's why the, so that's why the Hundred Years of War kicks off because technically, uh, the English claim to the French throne was correct because you would just, okay, well then it would go through the sister who's alive and so her husband would become, uh, king. And the French were like, uh, no. And then everyone's like, what do you mean no? <laughs> this is standard practice. And they're like, well, we don't, we don't want to. And that, and that was actually a change. So, That's what uh, the Russians didn't do that till the 18th century, did they? And it was only because, uh, somewhere down the line in the Romanovs, one of them hated Catherine the Great so much that they suddenly went, nope, no more women ever. 
Yeah, exactly. So it's like women can inherit or things can come through women's lines, but it's more likely that it's going to go through uh, men's lines just overall. But unfortunately, not um, a whole lot of examples of uh, women killing it in this area, unfortunately. That's quite interesting because uh, I know that in ancient times in Sparta, women could inherit mm-hmm. uh, property and things like that. So it's kind of interesting to see the kind of the contrast. And obviously nowadays, anybody can inherit. So, you know, yeah, I mean, now, so. Yeah, if we're talking about uh, property, too, that's also like a different thing uh, because you can inherit property as a woman. And it's just like it, it but things that vary from place to place and uh, practice to practice. So if we're like, um, here in England, women didn't really inherit, but um, in France or in Brittany or the Holy Roman Empire, for example, you would have what's called partible inheritance. So it's like a, things would be split up between siblings, and you'd all like get a little bit of a piece of everything. Um, for uh, unfortunately, here it is mostly just for men. But I mean, also you gotta if we think about things like dowries, um, sometimes like in a place where there is no. Um, if there isn't anything going to daughters, a dowry kind of is like an inheritance that you pay up front and take with you. Yeah. So there are sort of various ways to think about it. Um, but, you know, it's not it's not the case that, like, all women never inherited anything ever. But it's just, like, it varies place to place and region to region. Um, you know, for example, in Jerusalem, there's a lot of women inheriting, like, <laughs> crowds and that sort of things because dudes are constantly getting their asses killed. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> and someone's got to run the joint, you know. So, like, a, in Jerusalem, for example, things are a like, completely different uh, kettle of fish. So, you know, place to place. But, I mean, in general, yeah, men are running the show. I mean, let's get down to women's prospects lower down the social strata because we've got so many interesting questions for you. Um, Stephen Rooney wants Yay. to know... Stephen wants to know how homogeneous was medieval Europe when it came out, um, how women were treated. Did women in England, Poland, and Genoa all have the same prospects, for example? So if we're talking about average people, the answer is that for uh, across the board, it's generally going to be the same thing in almost all regions, which is that, like, you know, yeah, as a woman, uh, you're not quite a man. Right. Like there are opportunities and things, you know, as we've just seen, like in the Basque country, maybe you'll inherit. But um, as a general hard and fast rule, it's just, you know, you'd rather be a man (laughs) in terms of like what your what the possibilities for your life were. Um, One of the major things that's going to be different, you know, with this is a really great sampling like England, uh, Genoa and Poland, because one of the big things here is going to be what your life is going to change, like depending on wealth. Because uh, people in Genoa are experiencing a much, much higher quality of life than people in England, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we tend to forget now, because um, since English people did a great job of conquering the world in the early modern period, uh, we sort of like have retrofitted that onto the past and we go, oh, and spend a lot of time paying attention to English medieval history. Um, England was an absolute backwater in the medieval period. It did not, like, lead tastes. It was not considered important. It was the sort of place where you could let the Normans take it over and everyone would go, okay. <laughs> you know, and that was like... That's a lot of people's bubble there. Meanwhile, you know, the Normans <laughs> took took over Sicily and about five kingdoms were like, oh, well, we cannot have this. And there's, like, fighting back and forth over Sicily. And um, so basically anywhere on the Italian peninsula, you're going to have um, a nicer life generally because there's more things coming in. There's just a little bit more money around the shop, um, various things like that. Uh, in Poland, uh, same sort of thing. Uh, pretty rich agriculturally, you know, it's um, and it's a little bit more settled. 
But, you know, the thing for most people in the medieval period, and this is true of women, as it is of men, so the thing to remember, even though we're talking about kings and we're talking about people who taught in university, is 85% of the population are peasants. So, um, you know, anytime anyone is like, oh, in the past life I was a princess, and I was no, no, you were not, you were Ugh. not. You were not. You were in a field. <laughs> Today's episode's just gone out and it's Titanic and we've had a rant about all the past lives people, including the person that said they were the anchor. But yeah, no one's ever just a peasant in a field, are they? Yeah, it's like, and everyone was a peasant in the field, right? And so, to be honest, the major thing that's going to vary for a woman in um, England versus a woman in Genoa is the sort of thing they're farming, (laughs) (laughs) the sort of food that they have access to. So, you know, um, you're going to be farming a lot more sheep and things in England, which is uh, what uh, England was really good for, was producing tons of wool, everyone liked that. Um, And in Italy, you might be running a vineyard or something like that. So Mm. one of the things that will change is what it is that you're doing for agricultural labor. But odds are, as a woman, you are an agricultural laborer. Um, If you are in a merchant family, um, that is going to also be like one of these things where it's sort of similar across places because merchants, uh, if you're from a prosperous merchant family, all these women are educated. All of these women are um, numerate and literate, and they're running the business alongside their husband doing most of the same work. And they're probably enjoying a pretty high quality of life all things considered. So the Genoese ones would certainly be fancier than like the Polish or English ones. Um, but, you know, they'd all be kind of like doing the same work. So it's like yeah. a little bit about finding stratas of society and comparing them. And it's just more about, well, what's your quality of life like rather than, um, you know, huge cultural differences. I mean, obviously there are cultural differences there in terms of what people are eating and that kind of thing. But, you know, uh, it would be familiar. I would say that. Do you know, I quite like potatoes. Does that mean I was a Polish peasant in a past life? I mean, that would mean that you were certainly a Polish peasant, like, uh, in the early modern period. I think that's what that means. Yeah. Or you, maybe you were the ox pulling the plow thing. Or the plow wheel. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what? I mean, (laughs) if you... That is probably more likely to be the right answer. If we yeah. ever walk well, past I mean, the vegetable. I don't know, maybe you're South American. Yeah, or if we, maybe we walk past the vegetable aisle next time you're here and we hang out and this is over and you start having a flashback at a pile of potatoes and sobbing in the middle of Sainsbury's, we'll be able to tell if you're Exactly, exactly. Right, sorry, I'm going to calm myself down um, because Federico... Mostert asks, what was the dynamic for women in the peasantry compared to the what I've been told was the gen, the highly gendered roles of women in nobility? Um, so stuff's still pretty gendered uh, for the peasantry, but just not in the same way as it is with the nobility. Because basically, if you're a member of the peasantry, you're doing manual labor all the goddamn time. Right. Yeah. Um, there are some differences that we see, though. So, for example, men tend to be more involved in uh, plowing and threshing, uh, for example, whereas women are a lot more involved with stuff like planting or sorting things. Um, they'll, so there'll, there'll be like a manual division of labor. So some women are doing some things and some men are uh, doing other things. But everybody's in the field and everyone's doing a lot of hard work, basically. Um, yeah. You see some uh, really gendered stuff in terms of uh, 
for example, how the animal husbandry will shake out. So it's more likely, for example, that men are shepherds, whereas、uh, women might be taking more care of sheep if they're like home in terms of feeding, like in.、Uh, In a barn sort of situation,、uh, a little bit more、uh, care for animals that are in, actually like at the farm as opposed to out in the field.、Um, you also see a real difference in terms of particular work because women are more involved with, for example, the production of wool. So you know, if men are shepherding and shearing, then women are the ones who cart all the wool and they spin all the wool and they turn all the wool into cloth or weaving. So like that's Highly gendered,、uh, yeah. so and there's immense like wool is so important in the medieval period. It's like you know、um, this miracle fabric that will keep you warm even when it's wet. It's wild,、uh, so it's、um, a real cash cow sort of a thing. Like this is how people made money a lot of the time, and so there was just constant, constant、um, production of wool and woolen goods. And、uh, women are the ones who are doing this, like really intense、uh, labor and really skilled labor, and they're the ones doing it. Whereas men are kind of、uh, chopping it off the sheep.、Um, so there are things that everyone kind of clubs together on, like I don't know, churning butter, or you know, everybody be milking cows and that kind of a thing. But it, there will just be ways that, for example, the field work sort of shakes down for whatever reason. Excellent.、Um... Aside from actual heads of state, this one's from Nick Worrell. He wants to know: Were women regularly or ever、um, employed in the machinery of government as senior ministers or advisers? Western Europe specifically. Cheers.、Mm. This is see. This is.、Um... A、uh, frustrating one because I don't think so. You know, I could be wrong here, but I wrapped my brain and was kind of like, have I ever come across,、uh, you know, a minister、uh, who is a woman? And the answer is sadly no.、Um, now, obviously,、uh, as we were just talking about,、um, all these women,、uh, like no noble women, that sort of thing, they're intimately involved、uh, in politics and mach- the machinery thereof. They're really, really、uh, that. You know,、uh, real rulers. You know, it's、yeah. not like one of these things where you know,、um, oh, they might get involved or they're kind of like shrinking to the background.、Uh, women who ruled ruled、uh, definitively. That's、um, not to say they all did. If you weren't that interested in doing it, you didn't have to. But there are plenty who were. Um, within nunneries and stuff like that, you produce lots of women who are, you know, running the show, and they're highly intelligent and well educated, and they do a lot of this sort of thing. But you don't really see, aside from like courtiers and that kind of thing, you don't really tend to see women who are like a financial advisor or something like that.、Um, yeah. They might be kind of like. They might be whispering in ears.、Uh, yeah, I was going to say like maybe Margaret of Anjou like is not going to keep her gob shut, is she?、Um, but unless they're、yeah. sort of in that position to be able to stick their oar in, it's not really a position they can attain. Yeah, and I mean, especially in the high、uh, and late medieval period. Again, one of the reasons why this is going to be the case is that、uh, people who are advisories or、uh, you know working as ministers, a lot of the time they 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 basically come through two different routes. They either come through the church, so you know you'll have like plenty of clergy members who are advising、uh, people all over the shop. You know, bishops are intimately working with kings, that sort of thing.、Uh, you'll see tons and tons of that,、uh, but you'll also see.、Um, People who kind of come through the university system、uh, once again. So、uh, basically, once the university system starts cranking out, 
uh, various scholars, one of the things that they do, if they don't go into the church, they go into work for government. And again, women are excluded from going to university. So you can't, like, be like, okay, well, that's it. I'm going to work as a notary or something like that. It's just not going to – it just – isn't a possibility. Um, and it's unfortunate, uh, but it's one of those things. So your best bet if you want to be involved in the actual, like, uh, workings of government is to get born noble, and then you should be fine. But yeah. um, no real way to work your way in, unfortunately. So Tori Lushka asks, why are there a lot of women cross-dressing for power, freedoms, participation? Is it seen in later periods, for example, so women could fight in wars or attain property? So, I mean, this is a kind of difficult one because, so, I mean, the famous example here is Joan of Arc, right? Yeah. Um, so she does it. And, uh, you know, it's um, uh, hilariously, that's the thing she got, got on. Uh, she was actually killed for cross-dressing. Um, and that's what she was burnt at the stake for, uh, not for being, uh, you know, a witch or all the other things they tried to get her for, because that was like too difficult to prove, but you could absolutely prove that she was wearing men's armor and dressing like a man. Um, so as you'll note there, the fact that that's something that you can be burnt at the stake for, uh, if you rub people the wrong way means that we don't actually know a lot about whether or not women were doing this because if you got caught, you might be killed. Yeah. Uh, very well maybe though that women were doing it successfully and we just don't know right it's one of uh-huh. those things so i mean it's difficult too because you know a lot of people when we're you know part of it part and parcel of this kind of like fantasy about like putting on men's clothes and moving down the road or whatever uh, assumes freedom yeah. and you know of the 85 percent of people who are who are peasants 75 percent of the population are serfs so it's like they can't move down the road anyway, like man or woman. It doesn't matter like what you're wearing. You can't just leave. So, you know, most people aren't free to do as they please. They aren't free to move around as they would choose. And so it's it's one of those things. Um, is it possible? Yeah, it absolutely is. We just can't really have records on it because it, it's dangerous and illegal. You know, and that's kind of like what it comes down to, unfortunately. Yeah, I get. I see your point. It's like it's irrelevant what gender clothing you're wearing if nobody is allowed to move down the road because you're all serfs. Um, yeah. <laughs> I just I should have chucked this one in with war, but uh, Abid wanted to know um, the role of women in the Crusades because the, the first Crusade, especially, was like a mass pilgrimage, wasn't it? It wasn't all men at all. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, the, yeah, the first, the first crusade, uh, in particular, you've got a ton of women involved who are like, oh, that's it, we're marching, um, as well over to the Holy Land, right? Yeah. And the thing that happens then, as I made a kind of brief reference to as well, is that women are quite powerful in the crusader states that get set up. Um, because, uh, the men are always getting themselves killed. Um, or, uh, you know, getting leprosy or some damn thing, right? So they're, they're always dying because the gen- they're generally fine. hapless. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, funnily enough, I don't know if you've heard this before, but the thing is, if you go and you start a war in a place that you're not from and the supply lines are really long and you're just kind of like there starting your own society, sometimes the locals don't like that. Yeah. Uh, so um, they will kind of continue to keep doing war at you. Uh, and so you might be called out to fight all the time. 
Um, and then you'll get killed, and then your wife will end up being queen and ruling instead. So we have tons of crusader queens who wield a significant amount of power um, over in the uh, crusader states. Um, we also have a lot of women who do kind of, especially in the later medieval period, you get a lot of women who start going on pilgrimage and that sort of a thing um, out to the east. Uh, there's also just kind of like... Um, it can be kind of interesting over there as well because a lot of the time uh, women, if they haven't come from Western Europe, um, a lot of the time the crusade, in the Crusader states, men will marry uh, women who are like Armenian or, um, you know, from like Byzantine women. Yeah. So, and there are kind of varying expectations like within these Eastern cultures and women can wield quite a lot of power um, over there, you know. Uh, so you have a lot of, like, a quite feisty women who are actually from there and uh, do a great job of kind of, like, uh, pushing their hapless husbands around who are, like, you know, all the Norman guys who have come over. Um, so it's, it's a quite interesting one because as things go, if you're some form of European woman and you want to wield a lot of power... If you go over to the Crusades, um, you're more likely to actually get something done. I mean, Eleanor of Aquitaine goes on Crusade, right? Yeah. Um, and then there's all those rumors that she was having sex with Saladin. <laughs> you know, That's normal. A guy made Just that Just a up, normal right? thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, so he's like, I bet I bet she was having sex with him. Like, yeah, cool, bro. Um, yeah. So, but, you know, it, it is one of those things where um, if you it's a great way also, you know, like for Eleanor Vakotane to show your uh, commitment to the church and that sort of a thing. So it's a, it's a good photo op um, as well. So um, yeah, women are, are certainly involved, uh, especially in the earlier ones. And then, you know, later and later they get less involved essentially. And um, you've mentioned sex. So let's stick with it. Yeah. <laughs> let's stick with yeah, sex. sex. We got sex, our, sex. people just were not shy with these questions. Uh, so back down at the other end of the social strata from Eleanor, sex work. Was it like a brothel or pimp situation or were women working independently? Um, how did their work differ um, from lower class halls, if you like, to high class? So... Uh, basically, the way that uh, sex work worked uh, is so uh, it's different from how it works now because it was legal in uh, the medieval period. Uh, so it not decriminalized, legal. Yeah. Uh, and the, the reason why it's legal in the medieval period is there's like a big Christian conception behind this, which is that um, if dudes, this is this is official. This is like Saint Augustine will tell you this. Saint Thomas Aquinas will tell you this. Um, if dudes can't get some. Uh, they might get so horny that they will just riot in the street uh, and uh, they will burn the place down. This is the official uh, line on this. Uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas says that sex work is the cesspool uh, that uh, drains the kingdom, right? So uh, it's like, you know, no one's saying that it's their favorite thing in the world, but they yeah. accept that it needs to exist. So what that means is that it's usually allowed to exist, but there's a lot of laws that regulate it. Um, so a lot of the time, so for example, in German speaking lands or in the Holy Roman Empire more generally, what will happen is there will be municipal brothels. So you will get a piece of paper that says you are the legal brothel and you are allowed to work, right? In other places like here in London, uh, there aren't municipal brothels, but there are rules about where you can do sex work. Um, and this is common for everyone. Like even when you've got a municipal brothel, basically the rule is, okay, you can have your brothel, but it's got to be like either outside of the city walls or right at the edge of town. So it's, it's like a Southwark, you know, wasn't it, in it, London? But it's yeah, yeah, it, yeah. 
And so here it was in Southwark because, and it was really tied up to bathhouses. And this was, um, and this is common um, across Europe because, you know, people are getting naked anyway and you may as well enjoy a bath. Like medieval people uh, <laughs> love, to, love to have a bath. So um, they basically here it, we would have, you would go over to Southwark and there's all these like non-exit streets anymore that are like, made, well, Maiden Lane is still there, I think. But there was like, um, uh, there's like a lot of like rude names uh, involving like the word cunt and the word fun, like fondle and stuff like that. Yeah, and they nice. all got, <laughs> they all got, uh, torn down when, uh, Henry VIII abolished, uh, the bathhouses, which are called the stews. So, um, the thing with that is that you might run your own bathhouse and you might do sex work in it, or you might run a bathhouse and you might be like the madam of the bathhouse and there are other sex works workers who work in your house for you. Um, and like, that's both super, super common. Um, there's plenty of people who are also kind of like a independent sex workers. Um, and their trouble is that they need to make sure that they're working in the right place at the right time. Like, so for example, we have a, a record of a woman here in London who was not in the stews and she was doing a sex work uh, in town. And so she was like stripped to the waist and paraded down Cheapside and across London Bridge while everyone came out and laughed at her. And it's like, yeah, this is where you go. You've got to like go to Southern. You can't. So it's, there was like a ritual humiliation to tell her she needs to stay in her place. Um, is that humiliation or is that free advertising? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I'm her, I'm like, call me. I'll be in Southwark, clearly. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's no such thing as bad press, right? Yeah. Um, so like th- there is that, but there, and there's also like obviously like a strata here. And the, the thing about sex work is, um, it's one of the only things that's really available to women. So say you manage to run away from the farm, right? Like you don't want to, you don't want to work on the farm anymore. Okay. Like it's not the thing that you want to do. Uh, basically the two things that you are allowed to do is like be a maid. So like go, go and work in someone's house or do sex work. 
And so if you don't want to like go work for some rich guy and do laundry all day, then like sex work is the thing that women will do if they want some say in what they're doing. Yeah. So if you're kind of like a plucky young upstart, like this is, you know, the way that you can make money. And there are women who make scads of money. Um, and like, we know this, for example, um, from like, what are the, what are the ways you could become a saint in the middle ages if you're a woman? There's basically two ways to become a saint in the middle ages if you're a woman. One, be a royal or noble and pray a lot. Uh, or, and like, you know, that counts as like also going and being a nun and doing some mystical shit. Yeah. Or you can go be a sex worker and you can recant. So, uh, and we know like, like much the better option. Yeah, and so, like, we know, like, in all the stories that they tell about, like, all of this, the women who did sex work, and then they turned to God, they're, like, the point of it, the reason why it's a really big deal that they turned to God is that they were all making absolute bank, and, like, it will be always be in the story about, like, all the luxurious furs they had, all the silk, all the dudes on their knees being like, I love you, girl, please let me give you a bunch of money to have sex with you, and they're like, oh, I give it all up for God, right? So you can make a lot of money doing sex work. I'm not saying that all sex workers made money, but it's like there's a possibility for a she who wants to like run a bathhouse there. Like you and then if you want to age out of it or whatever and you want to run your own bathhouse, you can still be making money and it's one of the few things where a dude isn't involved. Yeah, there's clearly so, gonna be like a bottom level of it which is like the pound land of bathhouses, but the opportunity Oh yeah. But it's like so yeah, and it's like so for the most part we do see that it is something that is uh, run by women. Like the great and outstanding majority of people running establishments are women, um, or it's just women working independently. Uh, there's rungs within that, but it's pretty much a, a bunch of women. Uh, so, you know, uh, sex workers work. Good job, ladies. We love to see it, you know. Um, <laughs> I think we're in the wrong job, Alex. I think we should start our own bathhouse. As long as we just boss everybody else around. Yeah, no, that's fine. 50-50. Split it down the middle. Love yeah. it. Like the little, like the little wheezy guy from Queer as Folk in Game of Thrones. He was minted. I mean, he was, oh. a fan, but he got what oh, yeah. to him. But yeah, he was rich. I don't know. I'm a little bit worried now. <laughs> well, she you hasn't seen Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh, lucky I've you. read the books. I've read the okay. books. All right, all right. Um, Keep it that way, girl. Don't. Yeah, I, don't. I'm an avid reader. You can always just do what everybody in the entire world has done and skip the chapters about Brienne of Tarth. Hey, some of us are large women and we don't appreciate that. I do agree. Some of us are not. It's not her largeness. It's her dullness. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how to take this right now, but we've talked about sex. So there, logistically, we're kind of going to be looking at family life. Uh So Utka asks, how true is that they used to get married at 13 men? I've read that girls probably got their periods later at that time due to malnourishment. So were they marrying and having kids at such a such a young age? Answer: No. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, uh, the average age of marriage is usually like twenty and twenty-one for people in the medieval period, um, and that is like real standard and when most people get married. The reason why you see this whole like married at age 13 myth is that like royal and noble people will contract marriages around then. Yeah, that so doesn't mean there's get... actually sex going on at that age though, even with them, does it? No, it doesn't at all. So like you'll have like the marriage ceremony and that sort of a thing, or you'll just kind of draw up the marriage contract. Maybe you'll go live in the house of the rich person 
who, uh, you, you know, you're marrying, but you're not having sex with them. Like that's, that's a hundred percent not what's going down. And it's very much expected that that is something that will happen later. Um, in those circumstances, it is likely that, you know, you might having, start having sex with them around like age 16 or something like that. Um, but it isn't, it's not like what, like actually children humping each other. Like that's not what's going down. Um, so you do see more in royal circumstances, kind of like younger women, certainly, but like it's, it's more even than teenage. And even then, if you just didn't really feel like banging your husband until you were in the twenties, no one would think that was weird. Yeah. They would just be like, yeah, that's fine. But again, the 85% of peasants, they're getting married in their twenties. Um, so it's only, the only reason that we kind of have this myth is because rich people do weird shit and, uh, not the rest of people. Yeah. It's just, that's a, uh, that's one for the rich people. Well, even like post medieval, isn't Mary Queen of Scots first contracted out at like eight or something ridiculous? Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, um, or, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, Oh, um, God, why can I remember her name? Uh, Catherine of Aragon. Uh, yeah. She, like, comes up at, like, 13 or something like that. To, to so they Mary. were bumming around trying to get uh, Mary, Catherine's daughter, sort of contracted to a the French Dauphin, weren't they, when she was tiny? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, you get in there and you try to get that marriage contract going, basically. And so that's what's happening, but it's not actual sex that's happening. It's more, you know, marriage isn't... For these people, marriage isn't about love. It's not about anything like that. It's about uh, cementing alliances and starting a dynasty. Um, and so you can go ahead and do that without any of the sex. And yeah. That's what they were doing. Um, Rosewind is thinking more, I think, along the lines of normal people. Because um, obviously, if you're royal, you want to spit out as many mm-hmm. kids as you can. But what methods of birth control are medieval women employing? So the biggest one that like definitively will work if you do it correctly is uh there was a whole lot of pulling out. <laughs> um, yeah. That was, uh, so which is a uh, you know um, a good and useful technique uh, if you uh, are know your body well enough to understand when a man is going to ejaculate that sort of thing. Um, so uh, if if used correctly, um, I'm reliably told by sex educators that you know you it's still kind of like 90% effective. It's just that most people don't do it correctly. So yeah. that's a very good, <laughs> very good um, form of birth control. Um, there are other forms of birth control that like we see in like medical texts, like the secrets of women or the trotula and things. Um, but they will be kind of like based on ancient medicine or like Galenic stuff. And they'll be like, ah, oh, yes, um, use pomegranates or use rue or use various herbs. And then that will uh, stop you from conceiving. And, some of these things could theoretically work. Some people have done um, research on this, but most of them wouldn't. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of like sticking roots up your vag and stuff like that and hoping for the best. And it's like they wouldn't <laughs> really, really work. Um, wow. There, there are. <laughs> you know, it's not to put too fine a point on it. But uh, it's one of those, I forget as a sex historian because this is like what I do all day. And I'm like, oh, I just talked to normal people. Oh, no. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, do you know what? It's about time. We have enough war and I mean, violence on the show. Uh, it's about time we had a whole load of sex. So knock yourself out. It's fine. Um, we also know that they're doing abortion. 
Um, and there is kind of like some back and forth about uh, when, you know, uh, abortion is kind of accept- like uh, abortion according to the church is, of course, never acceptable. But there is a thing where they sort of think it's like less bad uh, if it's within the first 40 days. That's kind of like, a oh, five Hail, Mar- Hail Marys and on your way, you scamp. Uh, yeah. And we do know that they know about stuff like Pennyroyal, which is a fairly effective abort efficient. Um, there's also a big thing. So this isn't a birth control thing, but what people would do if they get pregnant is it was like a big to wear, like pad yourself out or wear various corsets to sort of disguise the fact that you're pregnant. And then you would sort of like give birth or, and like leave the kid in a nunnery or, you know, um, like adopt it out somewhere to someone, that sort of a thing. Um, but then also, uh, and very unfortunately, infanticide was just a bit higher yeah. uh, in the medieval period. Uh, and it's a shame, and it's really terrible, but if you're super, super poor and you know you're going to be an outcast for the rest of your life, uh, that might be something that you're kind of driven to. Uh, there's a lot of cases um, of that. Like, sometimes you'll get taken to court for that, and you can get in a lot of trouble. Uh, interestingly, there is a case from Moravia, uh, the other part of the Czech Republic, you know, there's like Bohemia and there's Moravia. Yeah. Um, where like a woman gets done for um, drowning her newborn son and the jury, who was 12 men, were like, I don't know, man, uh, it's her son, so she didn't do anything wrong. Because like, she wasn't married. <laughs> so it's sort of like, well, it's her property. So, um, yeah, so she gets let off. So unfortunately that is a form of birth control as well. But um, their major thing was uh, pull and pray. Yeah, and uh, be fair. If you do that correctly, it's not actually um, a bad form of uh, birth control. So yeah, a lot of that going on. A lot of that. Uh, I I don't really know what to say after listening to that, but um, <laughs> Alina's so, learning you... things. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, you make me sound so inexperienced. I hope my parents are not listening to this. No, you hope so, they are. Oh, sound as clueless as possible. tv judgment asks what did women do to deal with their periods back then and what did society or men think about women's periods um so the what uh, women would do for their periods is they would kind of have like absorbent undergarments like wool or they would use old rags that sort of a thing which they would boil up and uh they would wear them in order to absorb things um you know there is a lot of talk about this again in stuff like the trotula uh where you know it's universally considered that having your period sucks uh and they're like oh you know have some uh birch bark tea for if you're having aches and pains and it's like you know wool and rags and fluff um, in order to absorb things um the thing that there there is a lot of debate about menstruation and what it means um, in medical circles. Uh, it's considered healthy and good. Um, and what the idea here is, is that, um, you know, if we're thinking about things in terms of humoral theory, which is the prevailing medical theory, you know, from the ancient period up until basically the 18th century. So this isn't like just medieval people being weird. It's all based on ancient thought, actually. So go take it up with Galen if you don't like yeah. it. Not many old people. Uh, but so the, one of the things that they would say is, okay, well, the womb can be calm on balance. And so when a woman is menstruating, what it, 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 this is sort of like the womb reasserting its own balance. And it's a good thing. And you definitely want women to make sure that they are menstruating. Like they're very clear on the fact that, you know, women should be menstruating regularly in order to um, maintain health. Now, the religious side of this is, um, and you're having this and you're uncomfortable because you're bad and sinful because Eve ate an apple. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> the, the, 
pain in childbirth, uh, the discomfort of menstruation, all of these difficult things are linked uh, in the religious mind with original sin. And it's uh, the women's curse because um, of how they talked to a snake one time. Um, so that is kind of like the religious side of it. Um in terms of the sex side of it as well, there's a whole lot of uh, stuff about how you shouldn't have sex with women when they're on their period from the church because this is also another way of getting around getting pregnant. So yeah. um, you're not supposed to be having uh, sex when you can't get pregnant uh, with your husband. So you're not supposed to be having sex while you're on your period. But, you know, people were like, if we do it while you're on your period, you won't get pregnant. Great. You know, so there's also, you know, people are just like, well, whatever great way of uh, doing this without ending up with another kid. So, you know, there's levels of what people are kind of thinking and feeling about it. But, um, you know, on the whole, it's considered something that's natural. But the reason that it's natural is because women are bad and sinful. You know what I love is that in a thousand years, no man has figured out the correlation between it. It's not until they say that women are unbalanced while they're on their period, that women actually get unbalanced and want to kill them. I mean, it's amazing. It's some years of history. One of them is going to make the logical deduction to stop saying <laughs> it. I mean, you've got a lot of uh, faith in men that I don't necessarily <laughs> share. But... I'm joking. Oh, let's move Some on. of my best boyfriends are men. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Our last question on this section, because uh, we're just going to plow on if you're happy, because this is great. Um, Eleonora Masu says, I would like to know how medieval. Absolutely, let's go. Cool. Elena says, I would like to know how medieval laws dealt with violence against women. This after learning that medieval law in Sardinia, in some regards, was more severe to perpetrators and less detrimental to victims than Italian modern law pre-1981. So the answer is that it varies from place to place. Um, so because as law codes do, right? So yeah. it depends on where you are and who you're talking to. Now, Russia is bad, things. isn't it? Because Russia, you, yeah. I think at this point, it is still legal to bury your wife up the neck in the back garden uh, if she's like belligerent with you. And you can have three wives. And if you kill the first two, then you just really have to look after the third one because you're not allowed to get married again. I mean, seems legit. Uh, like, <laughs> the, the basically one of the, one of the things that you'll kind of learn from looking at medieval law, which. Um, you know, I try not to, but, uh, it's the thing about medieval law is a lot of it doesn't actually involve person to person anything, really. The great majority of legal law that is extant is just about property. It's yeah. like this, you know, will be inherited by this person. This is if you steal someone's gourds, then this will happen, blah, 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 blah. So the great majority of it is about protecting property. And that's actually the way into learning about violence towards women and how laws treat it. Because a lot of the time, uh, people treat women as property. And that's when uh, things will come up. So, for example... If you were to rape a woman, a lot of the time the way that this will get dealt with is it's a property dispute by whoever is seen to be, like, owning the woman, right? So if you're unmarried, uh, your father has been wronged and his property has been damaged. Uh, if you are married, your husband has been wronged and his property has been damaged. So it's not actually about the woman at all. It's about what you have done to the men in question who have some interest um, in her 
so yeah, that's that's uh, good and nice. Um, there is a fair amount of uh, wife beaten going on around the shop. Um, it's often played for comedic effect. You know, um, it's something that comes up quite often in you know like Canterbury Tales or in body plays, that sort of a thing. Mm. Um, you know, but it, it's it's sort of like the thing where there's a lot more uh, bopping each other around the shop uh, generally, and a lot of the time there aren't laws about that where it's just like yeah well um but what if people do get called out for this it'll be about like excess or what seen as like okay that's way way too much you shouldn't be um treating women like this um and it could also be that you'll just get in trouble with people's families so it's not necessarily legally what will happen but you know say you're a peasant and you're all living in the same village anyway and like your dad finds out that your husband's beating you he might just go beat your husband Right. Yeah. And there's like nothing that anyone can do about that because like, again, there aren't a whole lot of laws about what you're supposed to be doing there unless it's like it involves like, you know, poor people can't beat up rich people, for example. But rich people can have at it and beat up any number of poor people that they would desire, you know, that sort of thing. But there is just a lot less of a context of uh, the law is something that um, regulates violence. That's just really I mean, there isn't even really like a police force. Like, who are you going to call when these yeah. things happen? There's no such thing as the cops. So things are really treated more on an interpersonal level, um, and we just don't get to see a whole lot of, like, what uh, happens in terms of things unless property is involved, unfortunately. Oh, sorry, that was me. <laughs> Let's. Uh... I'm like, I'm like, yeah. I just left that on such a bummer. Everyone, yeah. <laughs> like, sorry. That is Not me. Good. Apologies. Apologies. I'm not on it as fast as I should be today. So, and let's do a bit of day-to-day life. I mean, everybody loves a bit of day-to-day life, and that's probably yes. the most interesting part of history. Well, I, that's I what I think. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, Gloria asked, "What types of women were considered beautiful, and why? And what physical attributes were um, coveted?" Okay, so there is an ideal type, uh, body type for women, um, and that is the pear shape. So, um, absolutely. Medieval people go crazy for a pear-shaped woman. They are hoping for that ass. Uh, but they're also really interested in, like, pot bellies. They think yeah. that pot bellies are quite sexy. Um, and this is something that you'll see over and over again in medieval art. Like, when you see uh, naked medieval ladies, they've always got, like, a little bit of a belly on them. Um, they've got super high little tits. Um, and... That is kind of like the body shape that you're looking for. Um, one of the theories behind this comes to us from dress theory. And it's kind of like, it's interesting because uh, the medieval period is a little bit opposite um, to a lot of the ways that other things work. So there's this idea that a lot of the times um, medieval body, the, the reason that that's the ideal medieval body shape is that that's what uh, medieval dresses look like. Yeah. Um, so, Medieval clothing is kind of like the opposite to ours in a way because what people are trying to show with their clothing is um, it's a form of, um, of of conspicuous consumption. So the richer you are, the more cloth you put in your clothes because you're like, yeah, you like that? I got a big skirt. Like, spend yes. a bunch of money. Don't even need this much cloth. Don't need it. It's in there anyway. So you'll see, like, these really full skirts and stuff. And so that this is, like, our, our, our idea is that we like a body shape that kind of emulates that. That's not the same for um, later societies. The way that we tend to look on modern, uh, like, modern things now is that a clothes now emulate what we think is the ideal body shape now. But that's not how it works uh, in the medieval period. It's the opposite. Um, so you're looking for the pear shape. Um, white skin 
just the whitest possible goddamn skin. That is it. Um, again, this is a form of conspicuous consumption um, because it means that you're not out in the field uh, pulling turnips all day. Yeah. Right. So it's like um, having really white skin uh, is going to be something that's going to set you apart. Um, a thing they also really like is super high foreheads. So ideally they want a hairline that is just like way up the brow. Like, um, again, you'll see this in medieval portraits and stuff. So really kind of like long oval face, really high forehead. They like that. Um, there is some interest in kind of like lighter hair, but like not across the board. Some people can get quite interested in sort of blondes and that kind of thing, but you don't always see it. Um, and it's interesting because, so for example, medieval people, interestingly, uh, had better teeth a lot of the times than uh, modern people did because they just don't have access to sugar. Yeah. Um, like we do. And like, that's the thing that ruined everybody's teeth was just like putting sugar in everything. Um, so they've got kind of pretty all right teeth. Uh, they brush their teeth. Um, it's not, I mean, un- interestingly, I just read a really great book, which I'll plug now uh, called the clean body that taught me this a couple weeks ago, but I'm going to say it like I knew before that anyway. Excellent. Um, it wasn't, I want to know. It wasn't, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't until the 1960s, um, after the 1960s, that toothpaste did anything, uh, even when we had toothpaste, because it wasn't until we discovered fluoride, fluoride that toothpaste does anything. It's the actual brushing of your teeth that made them clean, not the toothpaste. I mean, toothpaste now works, but it didn't then. So, you know, they were, you know, scrubbing away with brushes, and it, that was just as effective as what anyone was doing in the 1940s, but they would have better teeth because they weren't eating sugar. So that's interesting. And there are some things about having pearly white teeth that is attractive. Um, makeup exists. And uh, so, like, we know rouge is a thing. Um, and we know kind of, like, lipstick is a thing. Um, you can make it in several ways. We do know that stuff like matter root, which um, makes uh, the, it's, the plant is called uh, matter. And uh, the roots make red colors. And so we know that people would use that as a powder for rouge or they would uh, make a lipstick with it. You do see uh, people using kind of like uh, stuff from galls in order to make uh, makeup. Or um, sometimes you do see kind of like the white face paint being big. But that's like that's more of an early modern thing. But women wore makeup. And we know this also because uh, there's a lot of railing against women wearing makeup in um Preachers are always complaining about this. They're always like, oh, yeah, hussies putting on lipstick. <laughs> it's the end of the world, you know, so that that happens. But um, makeup certainly was um, involved. And, you know, people like to talk about cherry lips and all that. That's that's still um, part of the culture. But um, in general, they just think things that we do not necessarily think are hot are hot. Uh, and they would like you to have a little bit of a tummy and a high forehead, please. And never, ever, ever get a tan. And, like, that is, like, when they're, like, oh, yeah, this this girl's sexy. <laughs> I love it. Um, I, you know what? This next question, I, I've i been waiting for this one. And he's worded, the, they've worded it brilliantly mm. as well. Uh, Maui Mastudi, I'd like to know the truth about hygiene norms in different social strata, exclamation mark. Feels like everything I've ever been told boils down to either rich women in deadly makeup or poor people shitting everywhere and no one taking baths because it was unhealthy. Is this true? So, medieval people bathed. 
<laughs> we're just gonna we're gonna start with that. Um, and you know, sometimes they're bathing in order to like also see a sex worker, but they're bathing. Um, and we I know this to be true. It is a great leisure time activity for them. Uh, they love to go to a bathhouse. Um, but you know, as like this suggests, like there's bathhouses where you might go to have like your big bath uh, once a week or something like that. But in between, people tend to wash in their own homes uh, with soap and water. They make their own soap, especially kind of from the 12th century onward. Uh, that's a really big thing, you know, Castile soap, which still exists, uh, gets invented uh, in the medieval period. Um, so you'll probably like wash with a basin and soap and water in your own house. Um, and swimming is really big in the summer. Everybody likes to swim and take a bath that way. That's great. Um, you will see that rich people might be able to bathe more extravagantly more often. Like we'll see woodcuts of them in like big wooden baths and that sort of thing, mm. like enjoying a bath in their own home. Um, that's a rich people thing because, um, obviously water's heavy. If you need to heat it up that much, you're going to need a bunch of, uh, like, servants lugging water back and forth. So that's, like, something that only the more extravagant gets experience. But everyone is washing themselves uh, pretty regularly. I mean, like, deodorant doesn't exist and that sort of thing, but they're certainly washing. Um, laundry is something that's also uh, happening really regularly. It's a really terribly difficult chore like you know you're basically soaking um clothing and cloth and ash uh letting it sit for a day then taking it out to a river or something like that getting it all wet rinsing it out and then it's got to dry so it's like this seriously laborious uh, process mm. um here in cities like london um one of the things that's open to women again as a career is uh, being a washerwoman just because everyone hates doing laundry so much uh but that is something that uh, gets done and they they are clean like they're bathing um yo like is there excrement in the streets yeah probably uh because like there's no plumbing so but that doesn't mean that, like, people are just, like, rolling around in poop. That's not, like, what the deal is. Everyone is bathing and doing their best. They also enjoy being clean. And, um, I mean, we also know this from stuff like, um, for example, sometimes if people are gunning, they want to become a saint. One of the things they'll do is give up bathing. And everyone's just like, ah, oh, Jesus, I bet that sucks. Damn, he stinks, you know. And it's, like, one of the things that people will comment on. Like, it's, it's like, oh, you can tell that um, I'm holy because I've done this really uncomfortable thing. Uh, for God. But yeah, they bathed. Um, the reason, it, like, actually bathing goes down in the modern period. Um, so it goes down after um, you have the kind of, like, crackdown. Once Catholics and Protestants become two separate things, there's a bit of a crackdown in, like, public morality and that sort of thing. And a lot of the bathhouses are closed because, again, there's a lot of sex work going on there. Uh, but also, it's like a place that you go and you're just naked around a bunch of people of the opposite sex. And, like, everyone is like, oh, no, there, there can't be any fun. Stop this right now. So you get a lot of those clothes, like, Henry VIII closes them here in London, for example. Mm. Um, and so it's a modern thing where uh, bathhouses get closed down, and this idea that, like, being dirty is actually good for you does sort of exist, um, but it's a modern thing. It's an early modern thing. It's not a medieval thing. It's just that... Also, I think that people don't know what medieval means. A lot of times people just think that medieval means before Victorians, uh, but it means, you know, from the fall of Rome to, I mean... Martin Luther, more or less. Yeah. So you've got like 1,100 years, 475 to, you know, 1517. That's medieval. After that, that's not my boy's problem. Don't, like, yeah. don't get mad at them <laughs> about bathing. Like, you can go ahead and yell at Henry VIII all you want, but that doesn't make it medieval. He's a modern <laughs> boy, you know. Like, that's, that's all I had to say. Listen, we've talked about some incredibly amazing things, and we've laughed, but we've saved the juiciest stuff for last. <laughs> 
people haven't been shy and it's absolutely fantastic. But let's talk about sexuality. Oh, yes. <laughs> so Imelda Snarkus asks, is there any documentation of kink sexual weirdness of medieval women? Oh, yes. Oh, my, yes. Um, so some things. Um, I've done a BBC radio pro- program about... Um, uh, S&M, which I could like uh, go look that one up. That should be good and coming out sometime soon. But um, so we know, for example, that one thing that medieval women like is dildos. Um, and uh, we know this from a couple of different sources. Uh, one source, uh, which is kind of a difficult, is uh, penitentials. Now, penitentials for the uninitiated, that's what a priest will uh, use if, when you go to confession if he's trying to get, like, if you're not being super forthcoming about what you're doing when, um, about, like, what sins you've done, he can ask you questions for you to answer. Um, and then it also tells them what the correct amount of penance for someone to get if they've done this sin. And uh, Bouchard of Worms thinks that you should ask women um, if they are making dildos, which, which which he says is, have you made something in the shape of a man's, uh, of a man's sex, um, of a size to fit your filthy mind, right? Which he means a dildo. Um, and that's like one question. And then his next question is, and then have you taken it with leather fasteners and fastened it to your hips in order to use on someone else? So he's like, and are you using them as a strap-on? Um, now, penitentials are a difficult source because it could just be some priest guy being like, oh yeah, I bet the ladies are making dildos and oh, it's bad, it's bad, right? Like, that is <laughs> But we have records of people making dildos uh, for other people. So for example, we have receipts. We've got actual receipts um, about uh, people saying, okay, like in the Lowlands, there was an, a le- red leather strap-on that was made for a woman at a point in time, and we've got the receipts from the leather maker who made it for her. Um, so there are a lot of dildos around the shop. There are people strapping on and having sex. That is something that's extremely going down. Um, you do see, um, like, some things that, you know, you and I would describe as, like, kind of S&M-y uh, happening. We see a lot of people, for example, having what we would characterize as kind of sexual thoughts about um, saint statues and uh, statues of Jesus in particular. And you'll see people who like have ecstatic visions about Jesus coming down off the cross, all covered in blood and like making out with them, for example. Okay. It's a fantasy, um, I suppose. Uh, That's weird. Incredibly weird. Yeah, uh, that's a thing that happens. Or, you know, there'll be nuns who write about, like, they have a vision where Jesus comes down from heaven and they all have a big orgy, all the nuns and Jesus. Like, that's a thing uh, that they think about. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and they write about it, but it's, like, it's not written about in, like, a, you know, you and I read this and you're like, okay, so um, this is a sexual fantasy. And they're like, no, no, it's just, you know, Jesus and my sisters and I having a great naked time in ecstasy. And we're like, right. Okay, so there is some kind of like you, you, you got to like meet medieval people on their own terms, and they might not necessarily like be like, "Yes, I'm kinky. This is what I'm into." But you, you and I might look at this and go, "Yeah, all right." You know, like that's that is the thing that's uh, going on here. Um, but you know that that is what it is. Uh, but yeah, they're uh, they're enjoying they're enjoying kink. We know that um, Abelard and Eloise, who you might have heard of, uh, they. Uh, 
I mean, Abelard's an abusive prick, so let's like not celebrate it too much. But um, he talks about hitting Eloise um, and how um, he, when he beats her, they're like the caresses and his kisses is the same thing as when he hits her. So it's like there is some kind of like sexual kind of like dom thing going on there as well. Although, um, you know, fuck Abelard. Yeah. But, <laughs> Absolutely, uh, but like there, there is a certainly that this kind of like kink adjacent sort of thinking, but they just don't have the same kind of vocabulary or experience of it as we do. They don't have babe station, is what you're saying. Not that I'm aware of, unfortunately. I've been looking. I've been looking. <laughs> okay, our last question for you uh, is from Eleanor Davis. She says, "I would love to hear about queer medieval women. How visible slash invisible are they? How are other people regarding them? And attitudes towards queerness in general, if possible." Thank you. So this is a great question. Um, and one of the things that is, you know, just like we can't necessarily say that someone is kinky because they're relating to things differently. Yeah. There isn't really um, a medieval conception of like a bisexuality or homosexuality because um, they don't think of sexuality as being a character trait uh, for them. It's just that either you're doing sodomy or you're not. So you're a sodomite or you're not. It's not being gay. It's not being bisexual. It's being a sodomite. And the thing is, Straight people can be sodomites too, because sodomy doesn't mean butt stuff, and it doesn't mean sex between just uh, two people of the same gender. Sodomy mm. is any kind of sex that can't get you pregnant. So uh, butt stuff is, of course, sodomy. Uh, but so is, like, frittage, so is oral sex, um, so are hand jobs. So if two married people go down on each other, they are sodomites. Right now, that does mean obviously that any people who are having what we would call gay sex have sex. They're obviously sodomites because no one's going to get pregnant from that, right? Yeah. Um, and we know that women definitely were going to town. So you know all those strap-ons I was talking about earlier. Yeah. 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 There's an audience for that. You know, um, we have love letters that are from nuns to each other. Um, which are like, there's this one, uh, where there's like one nun writing to another and they moved into, they got moved to different, um, uh, nunneries in German, in what's now Germany. Um, not because they were gay, but they were very much in love and they're like, uh, writing each other letters and they say, um, when I think of your little face and how you used to kiss my breasts, my heart is breaking. And it's just like, oh, girls, no. Um, <laughs> you know, but like, you know, they fall in love. Um, you can read, uh, some of Hildegard of Bingen's, um, letters to some of her, uh, her followers, like really do read as romantic, you know, like again, they get moved to other nunneries and she's like missing them so much. And she's like, I'm broken hearted. And, you know, you do see these kind of like really romantic relationships between women. Um, we do, it, the thing is that it is just a little bit less visible because, you know, in the first place, you can get in trouble for it, obviously. Um, but in the second place, people are just kind of, like, not looking. Like, yeah. nunneries are, like, the number one place to go if you want some girl-on-girl action. Uh, there's a lot of that uh, happening. And people are just kind of like, yeah, well, you know, like, it's just, eh, you may have and you may not. Um, and it's not really kind of considered something that, something needs to be done about it, but it's certainly something that's happening. Um, it's also just kind of like one of those things that like goes, flies under the radar because it's just like, you know, girls being girls. Uh, when people start to crack down more on homosexual activity, which is sort of like, um, in the very late medieval period, you might even call it the Renaissance period, like, uh, medieval people are less concerned, um, about what, uh, you know, gay people may or may not be doing. Not to say that they aren't, uh, but just like less concerned about it. Um, early modern people lose their minds about it. 
um, yeah. and start like making the actual homo police like go after gay guys and that sort of a thing. Um, and then that goes underground and it becomes a little bit more dangerous. But it's sort of like one of those things that you do see. So there are queer women there. We've got queer love letters. We've got dildos. We've got we've got it all, baby. Like um, you know, there's there's women out there uh, having sex with each other and falling in love and kind of like living their life in the best way that they can. Um, but yeah, there's queer women. They wouldn't necessarily think that they were queer, but uh, we can see them. And it's like, hey, girls, nice to see you. <laughs> I love it. And um, uh, thank you so much for coming on and giving us such a comprehensive look at medieval women and not just at famous medieval women as well, but telling us like what life was really like um, for women in the period. I'm just absolutely stunned by the length and breadth of your knowledge. Um, you're going to have to come back soon on another topic because it's been great. Oh, I would absolutely, um, if you, what you want to do is talk about medieval normal people, that is my whole jam, so yeah. yes, please. <laughs> but um, as well, we would love you to come down the pub with us at some stage for that show that we were uh, oh, yes. on Thursday night. Oh, it won't be the same as having someone pour the pint for you, but we do at least get a little bit trash and hash out some historical debates. We'd I love, love it. to see you. Absolutely. I love, I love to hear it. It's uh, that my natural home is yelling about history uh, while half cut, so, you know. <laughs> Tomorrow, wow, tomorrow, uh, utter carnage and chaos ensues as we get together the chosen men, all five of them from Sharp, for the first time in Donkey's Years. Uh, it's brilliant and hilarious and insightful. And, and there's a, a lame attempt to include some serious history in there. But frankly, uh, I couldn't control them. But it's brilliant. So join in for that as well. Don't forget that you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month to help keep us going after the coronavirus crisis. You can do this by going to www.historyhack.podbean.com. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both.